Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm Director of ECFR, and this week's podcast will be about climate and development cooperation in a world of competition. The last few days will go down as one of the hottest weeks in Europe on record, with temperatures in some place reaching 48 degrees. It isn't yet clear what the long-term consequences of such extreme heat will be, but it does serve as a stark reminder of the urgent need for global action on climate change. While Europe grapples with unprecedented heat waves, countries in the global south face even greater challenges in dealing with the impacts of rising temperatures and environmental degradation. And at the same time, we're seeing an intensifying competition between the United States and China, which is both accelerating action in some areas and complicating it in others. So what we're going to talk about today is what role civil society and NGOs can play in these debates, how the West can engage with the global South, and above all, what role Europe can play when it comes to navigating an increasingly fractured multilateral landscape. And to help me make sense of all this is a very special guest. Kate Hampton is CEO of the Children's Investment Fund Foundation, has been since 2016. It's one of the the biggest, maybe even the biggest uh, uh, private foundations that support action on on climate uh, diplomacy issues. And she's worked in government, in finance, in consulting, in a think tank and policy world. She's worked for various policymakers in different roles, including for for the UK government during G8 and and EU presidencies. And at the risk of of revealing how old we are, um, we've known each other at least three decades. And Kate's been working on climate change in uh, ever since we we very first met when we were very young people. So thank you very much for joining me, Kate. It's really, really, really fun to be here. So why don't we start with the big picture, Kate? You've been, uh, as I said, following uh, all of these issues for decades now. Um, it's uh, it's kind of it seems to be an important moment in the the multilateral climate and development uh, landscape we've just seen some some big discussions uh, in bonn at the paris summit for for new new glo- global finance um, but we have two uh, big events coming up in the autumn the africa climate summit and uh, in nairobi in september and cop 28 in dubai um how do you see all of these things fitting together? Where do you think we're at in terms of, of, uh, of this nexus between climate and development? Well, the exciting thing is that these two things are coming together in a very real way. Um, I think for most developing countries, they've been two sides of the same coin for a long time. But I think a lot of the narrative in the North has been, you know, keeping these things quite separate, different ministries, um, different communities in civil society. Um, But the exciting thing is that that those communities are coming together in the north as well now um, to reflect the narrative that's been coming from the south for a long time, which is um, that climate change is a threat to development, but you can't tackle climate change unless there's uh, a development pathway. Um, So the the Paris summit, I think, was really critical. um, And the nature of it kind of shows the heart of the problem. So the Paris summit arose from the work that's been championed by Prime Minister Mia Motley of Barbados, who is an extraordinary leader and has had an extraordinary impact, actually, on the multilateral system. A small island state has effectively hacked uh, multilateral diplomacy and the international financial system by working really closely with civil society 
to change the way that we were talking about climate and development and the central role of the international financial system, both public and private, in whether um, these goals are going to be achieved. Um, and the Paris summit um, isn't a real decision-making venue. It was a summit that responded to the call that was started by Prime Minister Motley and huge credit to President Macron for hosting it. But it just shows how complex and multi-venue these topics are and dealing with these things in a holistic way means being able to keep lots and lots of pieces alive um, and get an ecosystem to function together, uh, different institutions, different decision-making fora, different treaty processes. Um, it's hugely complex and you need a very highly aligned community operating across all of those venues to actually make progress because there's so much interdependency. Um, so that's the point where we're at. And Paris in many ways was showing um, how far we've got to go, but we saw the emergence of really exciting narratives there. Obviously, Prime Minister Motley's, but also President Ruto um, and other African leaders um, really saying that um, developing countries have a role to play in the solutions. They may not have created the problem, um, but they have a role to play in the solutions. Um, one of the reasons why the, the global north is interested in developing countries uh, in a way that it hasn't necessarily been for the last kind of two or three years is about geopolitics. Um, you know, both thinking about uh, Ukraine, where uh, a lot of Europeans um, uh, and Americans have been uh, struggling to, to get um, the global south interested in Ukraine and have noted how frustrated they are at the extreme focus that we've had on Ukraine, but also some of the hypocrisy around our talk about um, about climate transitions, given the way that European energy policies have been going in, in different places. But also, um, you know, the behind that kind of immediate concern about the, the war between Russia and Ukraine is the competition, maybe uh, even uh, dangers of conflict between China and the US, which is sort of leading to a re-engagement. How do you think that these geopolitical events uh, are, are reshaping the debate about climate? Um, well, hugely. Um, and you're absolutely right that I think, um, you know, when you travel around the world um, and, and listen to leaders um, from across um, emerging markets and developing countries, they really do view um, the Ukraine crisis in a completely different way from how it's seen uh, from, from Europe. Um, they feel that they have suffered hugely from the consequences of the war, but also from the sanctions. I mean, the, the shortage of um, fertilizer and grain um, is, 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 is well known. And the hypocrisy issue, I think, is, is key. Um, to Europe's credit, the move towards green energy has actually accelerated in many ways. We've seen the ramping up of targets on renewable energy, for example. Um, but a lot of that is being displacing gas rather than coal. Um, but the, the long-term direction is, is clear. Um, but of course, there are um, a lot of charges of hypocrisy that can be fairly leveled at uh, Europe and the US in terms of the expansion of uh, oil and gas um, and those countries going around the world looking for um, resources. Um, um, and that obviously doesn't sit well uh, with our partners around the world. I think when it comes to the US-China questions, this makes everything very complicated. Um, you just take the example of uh, reform of the multilateral development institutions. 
at the World Bank, um, China's pretty clear that it's interested in increasing the capital available um, to the World Bank. Um, but the US doesn't want to see the China incre- that China increases its shareholding in the bank. And so you have these institutions who were invented 80 years ago. Most of the countries um, that are their client countries were not independent nations at the time that these institutions were created. Their voice is not adequately heard in these institutions. They don't have a role um, in leading these institutions. So there's a call for new institutions. But as we heard from Stern and Songwei, we need a trillion dollars of external finance uh, annually by 2030 for emerging markets and developing economies for climate transition, excluding China, we're going to need resources from everyone. We're going to need resources from traditional creditors of the Paris Club, um, G7, EU, other OECD countries, but we're also going to need resources from the Gulf. We're going to need resources from China. And given the geopolitics, the complexity of navigating all of that for countries which are seeking capital and have urgent development needs, um, urgent needs in terms of resilience, um, there's huge complexity there geopolitically, but also just in terms of the multifarious institutions and their different requirements. And if we see the proliferation of institutions, that will become harder. But at the same time, the old institutions won't reform because of the geopolitics um, to help bring all of this together. So it's making development finance um, and the climate negotiations more complicated. And it is, in fact, I think one of the reasons why we're seeing a lot of the new and exciting solutions come from Africa come from small island states who are in this leadership vacuum and, and fractured politics. They're coming up with solutions and they're saying um, how this problem needs to be inverted. So you think that increasingly a lot of the progress is going to come outside of the formal processes through either these sort of bottom up initiatives or um, or clubs um uh, and competition emerging, where, which drives at least investment and technological advances in a way that that um, uh, some of the multilateral processes have really struggled to to push things forward. I think we're at the point where a lot of the multilateral processes and institutions have to respond to these bottom up and more um, transactional or or um, you know public private um, diplomatic efforts. Uh, um, they have to respond to retain their relevance. So I think you hear um, many leaders saying um, in the margins of the Paris summit or in in the build-up to COP, for example, you know, we really need to solve these problems, otherwise these institutions will become less and less relevant. And that in and of itself is a a threat um, that is a worry to many. And so I think we're at this point where a lot of the exciting innovation, a lot of the energy is coming from outside uh, traditional processes and institutions. But those traditional processes and institutions are at the point where they need to respond or, or wither in importance. Um, so I think the system is, is shaking, but it's yet to be seen whether those institutions can respond. And certainly they're not responding quickly. So what does, you know, you spend a lot of time trying to encourage action from all sorts of different angles, from inside, from outside. Um, what does a good 2023 look like if we get to, when you get to to looking at the, uh, at the kind of balance sheet at the end of the year? What's the most optimistic version of 2023 that we can imagine? Well, I think we need to start looking at the challenges we face in a different way um, and in a way that will deliver different solutions. So let me illustrate that 
with um, a couple of examples. The Africa Climate Summit that President Ruto of Kenya is hosting is a really exciting moment. And he's a really exciting new voice um, on the scene. The narrative that Africa holds many of the solutions, whether it's in terms of renewable energy capacity, critical minerals, um, natural capital, human capital, but is given the unfairness of the international financial system and the international trade system um, needs capital and technology um, is, is a really exciting opportunity oriented narrative. It's about if we can make the system fair and we're not asking for special treatment, um, we can provide um, a huge contribution to rapid decarbonization of the planet. But for many in Africa, they're sort of looking at the green transition and they're saying, you know, is this just a shift from one set of commodity exports to another set of commodity exports? Where's the green for us? Where's the value addition for us? Where's the development for us? Where are the jobs for us? And I think there's a really interesting deal to be done here um, in this you know, competition for resources and competition for green transition, a really important deal to be done with countries that have vast natural resources to really use this as an opportunity not to create another commodity trap, but to, to completely rethink how, how, how things are done. Um, and I think you'll see at the Africa Climate Summit, the emergence of African financial institutions, businesses, countries, civil society, really talking about climate in a different way talking about finance and trade in a different way, talking about development as a consequence in a different way. Um, and I think this will open up new opportunities for investment, for diplomacy, and, and a different way of looking at power in the context of climate. Um, so Africa, not as the victims, but as a key driver of solutions. Um, Can you be a bit more concrete about some of the technologies which you're talking about? Is it hydrogen, solar? I mean, what kinds of things are you uh, do you have in mind? Well, I mean, it's all of the above and more. So we're talking about a whole of society transition. So there's no shortage of, I mean, it's technologies from efficient cooling um, to green hydrogen to obviously renewable electricity. Um, but we're also talking about um, agricultural supply chains, uh, resilient agriculture is going to be crucial, uh, resilient water provision, city infrastructure, modal shift, um, urban planning, you know, that it's a vast transformation. And of course, underpinning all of that is skilling um, and finding jobs for the millions of young people who enter the job market um, across Africa every year. Um, so all of these things are essentially a huge opportunity. But at the moment, Africa um, both, both the, the credit ratings of African countries are probably unfair. And even like for like across different credit ratings, African countries suffer a risk premium. The cost of capital is prohibitively high. And the important thing to understand about climate technology is you're often talking about high capex, low opex investments. It's much better to do these things, but sometimes the upfront investment is high. And if you have a high cost of capital, that makes it prohibitive compared to traditional dirty investments, which tend to be lower capex and higher opex because you're wasting resources as you, as you use them. And so we have to turn this around. The cost of capital for Africa has to come down. And that's got to be one of the most fundamental things that we see moving this year real focus on that issue. So can you be a bit more specific about what Europeans can be doing on that front? Yeah, so obviously the the debate that's um, emerging around the reform of the multilateral institutions is key. 
we're getting very, very low leverage from the multilateral institutions, about one for one in terms of public capital for private capital. That's highly inefficient. Um, and the arrival of Ajay Banga will hopefully be good news. It'll be interesting to see what comes out at Marrakesh in terms of the private sector mobilization piece. You are going to need concessional capital. You are going to need hybrid capital guarantees and other instruments to bring down the cost of capital. But there's some really exciting opportunities emerging in terms of thinking about how you do um, local currency investment, um, how you improve the operating model of the institutions uh, through standardization and collaboration across the MDBs to reduce the risk premium of particular kinds of investment. So obviously that agenda is huge. And then specific to, to Europe, because different countries have different influence in shareholdings, Europe needs a really strong European position on all of this. Um, and at the moment, we've seen um, ideas emerging from different countries, but we don't have a robust um, and coherent and ambitious forward-looking, forward-leaning offer from Europe to Africa and other parts of the world, which are keen to um, leapfrog dirty technologies um, or decarbonize uh, where there is um, already fossil fuel infrastructure. Um, but Europe hasn't come up with a very clear offer. And this gets back to the geopolitics. So if you were president of the European Commission for a day, what would be in your the offer that you try and get member states behind? Well, um, really clear positions on uh, reform of the multilateral institutions, um, really clear positions on how Europe is going to work with um, African nations that are providing critical minerals and enable them to add value, um, industrialize um, and become part of the solution and create jobs at the same time. So that's going to be joint ventures but we and, and in various investments, but you're going to need a, a strategic framework to that. And I think the problem with a lot of the responses to China's Belt and Road is that they've been interesting rhetorically, but they haven't actually been borne out with really practical developments on the ground and people really aren't seeing the results. Um, and I think also um, to this point about China, I think Europe is in a, in a fairly unique position in that Europe can not necessarily co-invest directly um, with uh, China, but certainly think of ways to provide complementary support um, to countries in terms of technology and expertise. Um, and France has played a particular role, for example, working with China on debt restructurings. Um, and AFD has done some investments that, that China has been part of. So I think we need to see more of that. We need to see more collaboration in a way that, that supports the, the needs of developing countries. And how do you think Europe is, is seen um, as an actor in, in different places? I mean, we talked a little bit about that in the context of Ukraine, where I think, you know, there's definitely been a lot of frustration in the way that you describe. But Europeans like to think of themselves as climate leaders, but, uh, you know, the, the sad story of, of the last uh, decade has been of, of Europeans facing up to the limits of their ability to to lead anyone on anything, um, starting with the, the, those kind of extraordinary pictures in Copenhagen, where you had the Europeans not even in the room um, at, at the COP. Um, and, you know, been attempts to try and find different ways into it. The French, obviously, um, have been the most active, um, both in Paris, but then also Macron's uh, uh, summit in July, which you were talking about. But um, what, what do you think the kind of 
perceptions of Europe around the world are as a as a kind of uh, actor on climate? Well, I mean, showing up is already an important first step. I mean, if you look at the the summits that have been hosted on European soil, so there was a big adaptation summit a couple of years ago, and then the Paris summit. African heads of state massively outnumbered European heads of state on their own continent in meetings that they have convened. And that sends a horribly negative signal in terms of the extent of um, salience that these issues carry. Uh, you have, you know, the, the UK uh, represented by uh, Andrew Mitchell, who is a, a really good minister on, on development issues, but he's relatively junior compared to the um, the attendance that came from the US and others, Rishi Sunak, Jeremy Hunt, James Cleverly, nowhere to be seen when they're two hours away on a, on a, on a train at the Paris summit. Um, so I think showing up is important. Um, it's a sign of respect um, and being there and, and listening. I think that's one of the, the things that, that, that Macron did well at the summit. But obviously it has to go beyond that. We need to get into a, a real partnership conversation along the lines that I was describing in terms of really thinking about value chains for green industrialization that really um, enable Africa to thrive within those partnerships, that it's not another extractive set of relationships. And I think at the moment, trust has completely broken down. Uh, COVID, obviously, everyone's talked about that, um, was a real um, trust killer. But I think, um, you know, lack of fulfillment of promises, um, and and a continued attitude that isn't really one of partnership, um, I think, continues to frustrate hugely. So you, you talked a bit about some of the cooperative things one could do with China. I've just been in China for nine days and spoken to lots of people. And coincidentally, Franz Timmermans was in China at the same time as me meeting with the Chinese vice premier. They were talking about all sorts of different issues, including possibly ways of linking up um, the European Carbon Border Adjustment Mechanism, CBAM, with, uh, with China's uh, emission trading schemes, which would obviously need to be expanded to cover lots of different sectors. How do you see that sort of macro relationship with, with China working? Um, I also spend quite a lot of time in, in China, and I think it is extraordinary how much clean energy China is deploying single-handedly more than the rest of the world combined. Uh, I mean, the rate of deployment is extraordinary. Of course, China is also the largest emitter um, of coal-related emissions. It's the biggest producer of aluminium, of steel, and a whole a whole bunch of other heavy-emitting commodities and manufacturing. Um, but China is really serious, and I think it's worth thinking back to pre-COP26. It was, in fact, President Xi's commitment to... Uh, peaking and net, net zero, and indeed taking coal off the Belt and Road, that in many ways reinvigorated what was looking like a pretty much a dead a dead cop at that point. Um, and that happened just before the U.S. elections, and 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 you know the U.S. had to step up to the plate, and many others did. I mean, Europe was already, and the U.K. were already working on more ambitious proposals, but it got it got more uh, engagement from a number of quarters. So China is serious about climate change. Um, China also worries about the idea that um, there's a decoupling sort or a de-risking sort um, of supply chains. Um, and that makes China think it also needs to focus on its own energy security. And the default situation there is always going to be coal. Um, 
um, while the renewable energy system is being built up. So lack of trust um, is going to slow down the green transition um, because everybody then focuses on near-term energy security rather than long-term transformation. But I think China sees the EU as a really strong potential partner, particularly on climate Um, Given the volatility of U.S. climate politics, uh, depending on who's in charge, the the EU is seen as a more stable and reliable partner on climate change. And I think that gives Europe a really important role to play in getting the best out of China in terms of green transition, but also increasingly um, what China can do for the world in terms of um, green technology, um, green capacity building. Um, But of course, you can't overstate it because we still see um, a huge problem with coal. And it'll be really interesting to see what China comes up with for COP28. Uh, President Xi committed to peaking coal emissions in this five-year plan and starting to really bring down coal emissions in the next five-year plan. What that trajectory looks like will be the result of a lot of debates domestically about Uh, coal-based energy security in the short term in a difficult geopolitical environment versus the transformation and how fast China thinks confidently it can can move. And can you talk a bit more about the carbon border adjustment mechanism? It's something that a lot of attention has been placed on in Brussels. Lots of people thought it wasn't going to happen. Now it looks like it's, um, uh, well, now it's set to happen. Um, But it has an enormous impact on our relationship with with both China and the US and with a lot of uh, other countries around the world. Can you explain a bit more for people who haven't followed it as closely as you do, um, what it means, how it works, um, and, um, and, and how you think it's going to lead into this kind of big picture uh, architecture for, for, for um, well, for trade, for for our carbon transition, etc. Well, the super summary is that the CBAM idea has been around for a long time, and it emerged out of concerns that heavy industry had in relation to competitiveness. Now, a lot of those concerns are overblown um, because a lot of heavy um, industrial, pro- heavy emitting industrial products are not actually traded. So um, cement, for example, doesn't travel around the world, but things like aluminium do. And so it's really important to make sure that you're focusing on on the right sections of industry um, and not overdoing it. But it but it's been the competitiveness issue has been part of the emissions trading carbon pricing uh, debate for a long time. Um, fast forwarding to today, so it did go through. I think it's a necessary part of the political economy from a European perspective. I think it would have been hard to get, um, you know, the level of constraint on European emissions um, without having something uh, in the trade space. However, I think it's worth stepping back and putting this in context. The US, the EU and China are probably the only economies which are big enough to provide the level of subsidy that they um, are currently doing. Um, it's, it's very difficult for other countries to compete with that. As a consequence, all the capital is being concentrated in those geographies because that's where the incentives are, because those countries um, and configurations have the balance sheets to enable those subsidies to occur. Um, and then a lot of the rest of the world is shut out of those capital flows um, to do the investments in green technology that we were talking about earlier in relation to Africa. And then if you layer on top of that a border tax adjustment, what you're doing is basically 
in places that have been deprived of the capital and the technology, you're then going to penalize them for selling things into those big markets that have been able to invest in those things. So it's like a double penalty for many countries. And I think that is undermining our ability to create an inclusive, just transition uh, for, for many, many countries around the world. Um, I think that having um, border tax adjustments on large economies as a way of preventing free riding is a useful tool, but I don't think it's helpful when you're talking about the development challenges that many countries are facing because they have this double burden, as I said, of not having the balance sheet to attract the capital for the transformation and then being penalized for selling products using dirtier processes into those big markets. And how do you see the CBAM, the the European border adjustment mechanism relating to both the US, which doesn't have um, a kind of uh, federal uh, carbon pricing mechanism that that, that, that mirrors the, the European trading scheme, uh, emissions trading scheme, um, and to, to China? Well, this kind of goes into the deep geek of carbon pricing, really, Mark, because, I mean, a, a, a subsidy has an implied carbon price, right? Just as a as a regulation has an implied carbon price, as an explicit carbon price, all of them, I mean, the OECD does reports on this, looking at the relative carbon prices implied by everything from fossil fuel subsidies all the way through to explicit carbon pricing. All of those things have an impact. Regulations have an implicit carbon price. It's just not explicit. And in fact, regulations often have a much, much higher carbon price than actual carbon pricing. Like there are all sorts of regulations that have an implied carbon price of 100 plus euros um, a ton. So if you look at this across the piece, it can feel a little bit disingenuous because you're you're saying that these things are different, but actually their impact on the real economy is the same. It's just a question of, of sitting down and doing the maths. And so um, I think if you the, the important thing is to look at the range of instruments that countries are deploying. And the choice of instruments is very much dependent on the political economy of the country. Why is the US pumping money? at the problem, it's because it hasn't got the votes for regulation. It has failed successive uh, attempts to try and get any kind of carbon pricing uh, through Congress. And, and whatever carbon pricing would emerge would be so low, it would be laughable. Um, China's used the mix of carbon pricing and regulation, but it's regulations and its incentives to um, state banks and, and state-owned enterprises actually have a higher implied carbon price than the emissions trading system itself. So I think in that sense, we need to have an honest conversation about what's actually happening. The question is, are countries on a pathway um, to um, alignment with Paris to 1.5 or whatever goal? What is the implied carbon price of being on that trajectory? And how far are countries deviating from that? And who are the free riders? I think we need to take a more holistic approach to this, honestly, because I think how countries regulate tax incentivize is is um, is a domestic political economy problem, and it's better that countries use the instruments that can be the most ambitious than are wedded to a particular policy instrument. And what's your answer to the to European companies that worry that the um, a lot of these measures are, are leading to the deindustrialization of Europe? I think the deindustrialization of Europe um, is 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 something that's been going on for a long time, and I think climate is marginal for most of. Um, European industry. I think it's very significant in some sectors, as I said. And I think the CBAM 
um, measure targets very specific sectors. And that's if it continues, that is the way it must be. Of course, free riding is a problem. Um, but we've got a whole bunch of other problems in terms of um, dumping of dirty technologies in other countries, uh, which also require trade measures. So, for example, when you have high standards in one place, a lot of secondhand dirty kit gets exported to Africa, whether it's cars, air conditioners, and the energy penalty for those things are huge. So I really do think we need to look at these things in the in the round because Many companies, even though they're complaining about standards at home, um, they're allowing other things to live well beyond, beyond their useful life in other places. Okay, well, um, I think we're coming towards the end of our time, maybe even gone slightly over our time. But um, I want to give you a, a last word about the kind of longer term uh, trend. I mean, you've been working on these issues for, for decades now. Um, how do you how kind of optimistic do you feel about um uh, our ability to to survive to get on top of these issues to to turn the um the, the course of uh, of history on on climate issues yeah it's a good question it's one that i get asked a lot mark and it sort of depends on the day i mean there are days when i am literally terrified about the developments i'm seeing you know climate impacts are unfolding at a terrible rate a lot of the underlying indicators um are really quite frightening and especially when you think about for example east africa already five years of structural drought, what that means for those communities. Because at SIF, we also work on issues of nutrition, child marriage, and other things, all of which are being aggravated by climate change. So there are days where I feel really down um, and, and really anxious about the problem. But I also know that there are thousands of people all over the world who are working extremely hard to solve this problem, and that there are huge opportunities lying within the green transition that we need to make. Um, and that's what gives me energy. So I think we are already condemned to dangerous levels of warming for many people around the planet. But I think every fraction of a degree matters and is worth fighting for. And there are a lot of people who are trying to do that. And there is a lot of potential for climate change to be, and it sounds like a bit of a cliche, but um, an issue that helps bridge difficult geopolitics, um, that brings different generations together, um, that enables cross-party support in capitals. Um, it is an issue that can be hugely unifying, um, but it is fair to say that while we're winning battles, we're not winning the war against climate change. We are massively off track. Uh, we're halfway between the signature of the Paris Agreement and 2030 when we have to halve global emissions, which means that everything we do this year and next year will determine whether we hit that goal. Um, and that's that's frightening and it's humbling, but it's also energising. Okay, well, that's a good end to our discussion, this energising end. Um, but uh, there is one thing left to do on this podcast, which is um, our bookshelf segment. Um, what's on your bookshelf at the moment, Kate? Um, so I'm really enjoying uh, The Big Con uh, by uh, Mariana Mazzucato. So um, I bump into 
large consultancies bumbling around the place in capitals and processes. Um, and I'm really interested in her view of all of this about how large consultancies are actually stripping governments of um, capacity. She actually talks about infantilization of governments. And I, I do see weak leaders default to big consultancies to solve tough problems often. And I think it's a really, really good challenge um, to that. Um, I really enjoy her books uh, generally, but she gave me this one at lunch recently, and um, I've been enjoying that. Um, yeah, there's quite a few others. There's another book which I'm enjoying, which is called, uh, let me get the title right, How to Do Big Things, which is all about why large infrastructure projects have massive cost overruns and how you do that well. And I think it's a I think it's an interesting book because it's, you know, we're going to have to do so many huge things well and very, very fast. There's some really, really interesting things in that. Um, I probably got the name wrong, but I'm sure your your um, team can, can find the correct reference. I'll send it to you. Great. We'll put links out to all the publications Kate mentioned on our website at ecfr.eu. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please head to whatever platform you've used to listen to this episode on and subscribe to future episodes. And while you're there, be wonderful if you could give us a positive review and a five-star rating as it will help bring other people to the podcast. But for now, from Kate Hampton and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher for this podcast is Anand Sundar and the editor of this episode is Mireya Farrow-Sarats. Mm-hmm.